Well, if you take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 8. It says this. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, for indeed we are in this tent, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The title of our lesson this morning is On Dying Well. On Dying Well. I uh, was, have noticed recently that Russia continues to make the headlines in national, international news. Um, besides the fact that the war in Ukraine has now gone on for more than two years, um, there was news recently about Alexei Navalny. Who, is, who was a political rival of Vladimir Putin, who ended up being in a, um, a Siberian prison because uh, for, it seems like for reasons that were suspicious. And not, just over a week ago, apparently, he was found dead in his prison. Uh, he was young. He was fit. He had been uh, in, uh, in a court hearing the day before, seemed fine. So, again, there's a lot of suspicion around that. And, and in spite of that all, I mean... I don't think a Siberian prison is where anybody would like to be. And then earlier this week, there was a young lady from Los Angeles who actually had dual citizenship with the United States and Russia. She was a ballerina who came over here and was working here in Los Angeles and got citizenship. And uh, she went back to Russia to visit her grandfather, and she was arrested, allegedly for donating $51 to Ukraine's war effort against Russia. So we, we don't know all the circumstances there, and I don't want to trivialize that in any way. But as I think about uh, those circumstances, and I think about how, how horrific that would be for someone to experience, uh, I was thinking about uh, asking the question as we begin here, uh, what if you were overseas, and I don't want to keep anybody from going on mission trips this, this summer either, but uh, what if you were overseas and you were arrested uh, on some charge that seemed to be unjust, and uh, you found yourself in prison? What would you miss about life here in Los Angeles? What would, you, what, what were, what would be some of the things you would miss? Grace Church, okay. Yeah, what else? Food, what food? Who said food? Come on, give me some. I want specifics. <laughs> Japanese food. From where? I want to know the name of the restaurant. Okay. What else? Church? Family? Yep. Glad somebody said family. Um, 
I asked the same question at our Bible study on uh, Thursday night, just to kind of, and my wife immediately said she'd miss me. So that was, that's, isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, she was the only one who said she'd miss me, but she, she, she would miss me. Okay, what else? Who, 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 no, what else would we miss? Traffic. Okay, running water. Yeah. Freedom to express. Freedom. Oh, Ziploc bags. Okay, yeah, you wouldn't have to wash them. Right, okay. Well, um, as we think about things that we'd miss, um, it's amazing how when you think of the Apostle Paul and the fact that he did spend time in prison for reasons which were not clear, reasons that we would deem to be unjust, and he always had a great attitude. And we learn about that contentment in the book of Philippians. We also see it here in the book of Second Corinthians. And I think uh, it challenges our thinking. You know, sometimes when you come to the Word of God and you have a first impression, um, it's important to pause and say, okay, I want to grow, I want to learn, I want to understand this better. I remember when I was a young Christian, when I was a teenager, and I started reading through the Bible, and I remember reading uh, about end times, and I learned about the Antichrist, and you know, you're a kid, and you're like, wow, you know, uh, you know what, if, what, if, what if the Antichrist comes to power while I'm alive? And then you realize, okay, the Antichrist comes to power after the rapture, and so I uh, should be raptured. I'm a believer, but what if I'm not a believer? What if I'm the Antichrist? You know, like, like you know, oh, Lord, please, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm young. I don't know what I'm going to be, but I don't want to grow up to be the Antichrist, and I'm serious. Like, like you know, you, you, you don't have much information. You could be fearful of that sort of thing, and and then I learned, of course, that the Antichrist is actually against Christ and against God, and then in Daniel chapter 11, uh, uh, is not attracted to women or does, wants nothing to do with women. So I'm like, Phew, I'm not the Antichrist. Okay, so, so good. So, uh, because I love the Lord, right? And so, what about, do you remember the first time, do you remember the first time that you read about the rapture? And you, I mean, like early on in your Christian life, and you, you read First Thessalonians 4 maybe, and, that, and that, the, that, that Christ will appear in the clouds, and the dead in Christ will arise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up with him in the air. And you thought, wow, that's amazing. And if you were young, you might have thought, but before the rapture happens, I hope, What? Oh, yeah, get married. Somebody say, yes, oh, oh, oh yeah. Lord, I, I'm looking forward to the, the, the rapture, but before it helped, maybe I could just get married. Please. And then we could be raptured together. We, you know, please, just, just wait a little bit longer. Or, or maybe you're thinking, uh, you know, we're married, but we just want to have kids. Maybe we can have kids and then be raptured. Or, you know, it's going to go, you know, it goes on down the road. Maybe, maybe we can have grandkids, you know, enjoy that. And, and I think... It's a wrong understanding of looking forward to God's plan for the future because we look through it in a very man-centered way. We kind of impose ourselves, but wait, what about me and what about joys in this world? And I want to take you back to verse 17 of chapter 4 
where Paul says, for moment, our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And, and what he was trying to get across there is that the future glory is so glorious that it doesn't even compare with any kind of joy you could have here or any type of affliction you could have here. I mean, that, that's, it's to that extreme that nobody would get to heaven and say, Whew, I suppose it's worth it up here. I mean, it's been, it's been, it was pretty tough down there, you know, but yeah, it's, it's really nice. Now, you won't even think that because it'll be so glorious, so great, so majestic that anything you experience down here, bad or good, will not compare to it. It will be so much better that you, you won't be able to say, hey, I, I don't even know how to compare it. This is, uh, my whole mindset is here. And I, I think that, Though there are certain joys we can experience here on earth, and they are good, and we don't want to say that they're not worth enjoying, but we sometimes underestimate the glory of Christ and the glory of a future resurrection, a future hope with him, and we end up uh, sort of belittling the future, and that affects how we live today. We We really treasure earthly joys more than we should, even good things. And what I want to point out to you this morning is that when you underestimate the glory of being with Christ, it has a negative effect on how you live today. That flawed view of heaven can result in more discontentment down here on earth, more anxiety down here on earth, less boldness for the gospel while you're down here on earth, less joy while you're down here on earth, and weaker fellowship here on earth. So this idea that creeps into our minds, a worldly idea, not a biblical idea, that if I die young, somehow before I experience certain joys here on earth, I will be missing out. FOMO instead of fear of God, this, this, this fear of missing out on something here instead of really being excited about what God has planned for all of his creation. It, it's something that can affect the way we live today. So this morning, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see three things that you will never miss if you're a Christian and you die young. Three things you'll never miss. And the first one is, you'll never miss your earthly body. And you'll never miss anything that feeds your earthly body, whether it be Japanese food or whether it be in and out or whether it be any comfort in this world, you will not miss. Let's take a look again at verses 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. It's clear from verse 1 that Paul is talking about two bodies here. He's talking about an earthly body, which he describes as a tent. Paul, the tent maker, uses a tent to describe about our earthly temporary body. And then he also has a body that is, he describes as a building 
from God, a house made without hands. It's interesting that phrase, without hands. If you do a study of that and follow it through Scripture, what does without hands refer to? It often refers to something that is not a part of this creation down here on earth. In Mark 14, verse 58, Jesus is accused by his attackers. They say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. This was an accusation against Jesus that he is somehow going to destroy, they thought, the earthly temple, the, the, the temple that is in Jerusalem. What temple was he talking about? His body, right, recorded in John 2, for 2.19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But what they heard him say was that he would raise up a temple not made with hands. Um, Colossians 2.11 is another passage that uses that phrase. It says, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And what it's talking about there is a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, a circumcision not made with hands, not an earthly, not anything in this creation that we know about. And it's made explicitly clear in Hebrews 9 verse 11. Listen to this passage. Hebrews 9 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Hebrews 9.11 has a statement right next to it explaining what it's about. Something not made with hands is something not of this creation. So we go to our text and we say, we have a building from God, a house made not with hands or a house not made with hands. No one in the house. And so we're talking here as opposed to an earthly tent, which is a physical body, which is a temporary body with an eternal body, that is a resurrected body. We call this a resurrected body, and we read about this throughout Scripture. But in verse 2, it's clear that the eternal body is much better than the earthly body. The future body that we'll have is much better Because the earthly body we have, we groan twice in this passage. He says we groan, longing to be clothed with our eternal body. Notice he introduces a new metaphor in verse 2. He had been talking about tents and houses. Now he talks about clothing, and he, he actually mixes his metaphors. He says, being clothed with our dwelling from heaven. With our dwelling from heaven. Um, he goes on talking about uh, verse 3, inasmuch as we will not be found naked. Now, the question is, what does Paul now mean about being naked or unclothed? And verse 3 helps us to understand that, especially if you look at the future tense of the verb there. Um, It says, inasmuch as we having put on, that's a participle, having put on, it's going to modify, it's going to describe the noun, something that the noun is described the verb. The verb is in the future. The verb is will not be found naked. Future passive verb. Somehow someone will look upon us and they will not see us as being naked. We will be clothed. And it, it helps us to understand that because it's talking about a future body that we will have. So therefore, being found naked would be an, a disembodied spirit without a body. I had my own body. I wish I could do that. This, this, almost this idea. It could have been that um, uh, 
you know, Paul was, was getting to this because it's possible that he was trying to speak out against the Greek philosophy that was common of that day, that everything that material was, was, this material was, is evil and everything that is spiritual is good. And many Greek philosophers taught and believed that you, if you died, you went to be a spirit and now you're completely good because everything that was sinful and bad was associated with your flesh or your material or your physical being. William Barclay in his commentary wrote, Greek and Roman thinkers despised the body. Seneca wrote, I am a higher being and born for higher things than be a slave of my body, which I look upon as a shackle put upon my freedom. In so detestable a habitation dwells the free soul. Barclay goes on, he says, even Jewish thought sometimes had this idea. And he quotes uh, some wisdom literature. He says, uh, for the corruptible body presses down upon the soul and down them that muses on many things. So there was this idea at that time that things which were material, the body, and of course Corinth is thick in, into Greek thought because it's in Greece. And so it's possible that Paul could have had that in mind. And while he may have had that in mind, I, I think that the, the, the larger context of our passage shows us that Paul wanted to encourage the Corinthians with a valuable perspective about dying. This would explain to them why he himself was so willing to die and willing to suffer, and he often did. This also might encourage them when they might face persecution. This is a part of this eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. His view that heaven is so great so wonderful that anything on this earth, any suffering here, I can't even compare it. Or as he wrote in Romans 8.18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For some reason, Paul wanted to assure the Corinthians that after a believer dies, he's not going to miss anything here about his physical because he was a physical body but it will be a better body it will be a new body a permanent body an eternal body your old body verse 2 caused you to groan also in verse 2 your old body you were longing for future eternal bodies again in verse 4 while we are in this tent that is our earthly body we groan verse 4 also we are burdened why are we burdened Verse 4, because we do not want to be unclothed, that is, without a body, but clothed with an eternal body, so that what is mortal, that is, what is earthly, will be swallowed up by life. What kind of life is he talking about at the end of verse 4 there? Eternal life. He's using a lot of words that he's already spoken to them, mentioned to them. You, you remember that in 1 Corinthians uh, he, he had a whole chapter, the largest chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, over 50 verses there just talking about the resurrection. And many of the same words he used in 1 Corinthians, he's using again, earthly, clothed, heavenly, unclothed, swallowed up. He, he's, he's repeating a lot of the same kind of terminology he's used in the past with him, talking about future things and how glorious it will be. If you are a Christian... When you die, you will miss nothing about your body or the comforts that you enjoy now. 
because your future body would be serious. What he's getting at in verses 1 through 4. It will be swallowed up by life, by eternal life. A second thing you will never miss when you die would be your earthly purposes for living, your career, your ministry, or what you're all about, what you find meaningful in this world that is apart from Christ, which really everything in this world that's meaningful is associated with Christ. But the question we ask ourselves when we look at verse 5, which begins this, uh, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. We say, what very purpose? So what do you think the answer to that is? What purpose is Paul talking about when he says, there he is? Being glorified, to glorify God, to glorify God. Now, but when we think about glorifying God, we often think about glorifying here, him here on this earth because we do, we are called to glorify God, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith, the chief end of, uh, chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's right. Okay, good. All the Presbyterians are here today. This is great. Um, when, we, when we think about that, we get caught up, though, I think sometimes, sometimes we can get caught up in thinking about uh, and, and our mindset is off. We're thinking about things here on earth. Someone dies young. He had so much more to do while he was here on earth. Again, we have our own perspective. Or, or we say, you know, a young lady dies. She was just getting started. Why did God take her before she completed what she was supposed to do down here? And we get caught up in this mindset that we know that the purpose of life is down here. And we think of even glorifying God or serving him. In fact, we think of passages like in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And, and we we, we realize and we, we think of verses like that. It's okay, I was created for good works. So I'm going to do things which glorify God down here on earth for his glory, and that's why I was created. But that's not the only reason you were created. Good works are important. Though they don't save you, they do testify as evidence of your salvation. They bring glory to God. Jesus said in John 15, 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So good works are evidences. They prove that you are genuinely disciples of Christ. John 15, he's the vine, you're the branches. You're abiding in him. It's the abiding principle we talked about a few weeks ago. But I think that sometimes we get caught up in what we believe God has called us to do now that we lose sight of our ultimate purpose, our greatest purpose. Think about this passage. In fact, just turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Keep your finger there in in 2 Corinthians. Go back a couple of books. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'm going to read verses 28 through 30. 
we're familiar with verse 28, right? It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So we've been called according to his purpose. And we quote this verse often. Stay there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read further on in that passage. But, but we quote, and you know, something goes, something goes bad. And we say, well, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And we believe that. God is sovereign. He sovereignly takes, you know, even terrible times. I'm amazed that he can even take good times, good things that we do, because I'm a sinner. And I, I, he, works, he works them together for his good pleasure. They glorify him. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 29. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And verse 30 of Romans 28. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, his purpose doesn't just begin with salvation and justification. It, it actually goes all the way through to when we are glorified with him. And actually, Romans 8 verse 30 says glorified in the past tense because Paul is so confident that you will be glorified. He speaks about it as though it's already done, but you are not yet glorified. And so therefore your purpose is not complete. And so don't be confused or think, wow, if I go to heaven now, I'm missing out on my purpose because your ultimate purpose is glorification. This is what we were getting at last week when we were talking about Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, that, that, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We talked about that first century wedding, which, which by the way, who, who, was, who would have asked at the Q&A? Question? Yeah, yeah, repeat it again. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a traditional practice. And Paul, Paul, um, so the question is, why don't we practice weddings like they did in the first century? Well, the, the first century wedding, which Paul would have been very familiar with, he would have grown up going to many weddings, and his would have been Jewish weddings. First of all, they had, very, they had a lot of similarities to our own weddings. Right? But they also had some differences. They had three different stages. There was, a, um, there was a, the fathers arranged the wedding. That was the first stage. Do you want that? Would you like your father to choose a bride for you? No. No. Okay, so so that, that already answers your question why we don't revert to first century practices. Right? The second stage was a betrothal which was legally binding. The groom actually said these words, you are a wife unto me. And if you broke it off, betrothal, you were either, um, uh, you had to file for a divorce. It was that legally binding. If the groom died, even in the betrothal period, she was considered to be a widow. And so uh, the, the, the third stage was the wedding celebration, which could last for, for three days, several days. 
So there were lots of things about the first century wedding that we don't practice, but the general picture of a bride being, being presented glorious, spotless, without blemish. I mean, it's the greatest story ever told. The reason why we sometimes wrongly think that I don't want the rapture to happen until I'm married is because we, we glory in, in the idea of celebrating and be united with someone in the closest human relationship that a person can experience. But that's only a picture of a greater reality. And the fact is that God took sinners who were rebellious against him, who shook their fist at him and said, I want nothing to do with you. And he opened their eyes to see their own sin. And he turned them from that sin. And, 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 and they repented of their sin. And they trusted in him and said, I give my life freely and willingly to you. Take my life and let it be. I, I want you to be my Lord and my master. I have made a mess of my life. I have no righteousness in my own. I need Christ's righteousness to cleanse me, to wash me. And someday I will, I have the hope of being presented before all the universe of Christ. That's the best love story of all time. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't get caught up in thinking, oh, I'm going to miss out on some great moments when we have a, a, a moment we can't even compare to any joy we have down here on earth or any suffering we have down here on earth. Ephesians, which talked about us being his workmanship, created for good works, also talks about the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It was a mystery to the, to the Jews, only being revealed by the apostles and by Christ that his plan was not only to redeem people who were Jews or converted to Judaism, but that he would take the two people on earth who hated each other the most, Jews and Gentiles, and he would bring some of them together and unite them into such a that these rebels who hated God and hated each other would actually be purified and sanctified and justified, but glorified to the extent that the whole world could look at them and say, the bride of Christ, how beautiful the church is. No wonder, 1 Peter 1.12, Peter wrote that angels long to look into these things. Because as far as we know, angels who are fallen have no way of redemption. And then they see men who are created who also fall. And God provides not only a way to redeem them, but to adopt them as children and to prepare them and cleanse them and purify them to be the bride of his son. What greater purpose could you have but to bring glory to God in front of the whole universe? That is what Paul is getting at when he talks about our purpose. In verse 5, he prepared us for this very purpose. The one who did that is God. And he gave us a pledge of that. He mentions this pledge. In verse 5, it's God who gave us his spirit as a pledge. This word pledge, which sometimes is defined as deposit 
or down payment or first installment or guarantee. It's a very difficult word to translate into English because we really don't have a good English equivalent because it really was a deposit payment. We have both uh, three times this word is used in in, in the New Testament, but outside of Scripture in in early in the first century, uh, we have records where this word is used, someone buying a cow or someone buying a, a boat, and they put down a deposit. They come back and get it. But it was different. Today, if you go, you see somewhere online somebody selling a car, you go to their house, you look at it, you say, I really like this. And they say, well, well I need cash. You say, okay, I'm going to give you $200. And I'm coming back tomorrow with the, whole, with the balance. And you'll hold it for me? And they say, yeah, I'll hold it for you. And it's understood that if you don't come back tomorrow, they get to keep your $200. Your deposit is gone, and they can sell it to someone else. If you didn't know that, that's typically how it works. But anyways, so, but that part of it was foreign in the first century because you had witnesses with your pledge. It was legally binding. Once you gave that deposit, it meant that you were bound to come back and complete the purchase. And so it's different than the way we use that word. And so, in fact... If you, the same word, aragon, is the word in Greek. It's still used today in modern Greek. Now, ancient Greek, it, people who know modern Greek don't necessarily understand ancient Greek. It's a, it's a dead language. It's, it's, just think about how much English has changed since the 1600s with King James, right? And, 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 and 2020, right? The 2020s. Behind us, the 1600s, you see like F's or S's, and you try to read, it's like hard, and the vocabulary Imagine going back 2,000 years to a dead language and comparing it to a modern language. But some of the words are still in existence, and one of those words is Aragon. And if you were to go to Greece today, and you were to go to a village in Greece, and you would say, show me an Aragon, you know where they would take you? A jewelry store. Because the word Aragon means engagement ring. It is a pledge. It is a promise. And here's what I think Paul's getting at, and that is he's, you know, if he, he's saying the pledge that you have is from is God's spirit, and it is so great, but it is a pledge of your greater purpose, which is to come in the future and don't get caught up. Now, earlier we were saying, what are the some things you would miss? And it would be right and good to miss church if you were in prison. But don't think that dying and going and worshiping the Lord and fulfilling your purpose would be less fulfilling than church would be. Don't get caught up even in in rips and people natural, and that's good. But you will be with Christ, and your purpose will be so fulfilling that 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 you will you. You, you won't be able to even... Uh, so somebody asked me recently, we were, I was at, at the funeral two weeks ago in North Carolina, and um, we had a bunch of people gather around afterwards, and, and they were they all from different seminaries that were there, and it was kind of a, an, a geeky time that we were all just talking about things. And, and one of the, but one of the guys paused, and he goes, you know, I wonder if Larry can see us right now. I just wonder, you know, this is divine speculation, right? And I said, well, if he could... I'm sure it would be out of his 
peripheral. And he would be so focused on the glory of God, unable to really take his focus off of that, and so satisfied by that, that he's not concerned really what we're doing down here, whether we're saying nice things or bad things or whatever. He he is in glory. He's not missing it down here, and he's not distracted by us down here. So when we think about that, that what we have in, in the Holy Spirit, I mean, imagine, imagine going up to someone who's engaged and saying, hey, show me the ring. And they, oh, oh, that's beautiful. And you say, like the most obvious question, are you happy you're engaged? They're going to say, nah, it's kind of hoping it's be someone else. But, you know, no, they're going to say, oh, it's wonderful, Right? And then what if you said to them, yeah, I remember my engagement. It was the best time of my life. It all went downhill as soon as we got married, right? (laughs) That wouldn't be an encouragement to them. But I think sometimes Paul is saying the pledge that we have is of something greater. And as foolish as it would be to say that a pledge is the fulfillment of everything, it would be foolish for us to say what we have down here is the greatest. It is so much better. And that should change the way we live now. It should also change the way we, 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 we respond when we are suffering down here because we can't compare it with how great it will be then. Let's take a look at a, a third thing you will never miss. You will never miss your earthly body. You will never miss any earthly purpose that you had. But thirdly, let's never miss anything that, anything that was temporary, verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul talks here about being at home in the body. He's talking about our earthly bodies still. He also talks about being absent from uh, the Lord, which is, uh, let me just read here again, be of courage knowing that we, when we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So when we're in the body, we're here on earth. We're not physically with the Lord. We're not in the same situation we will be. In verse 8, he says it differently. He says, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. We prefer to be the day, I look forward to the day, Paul says, when I'm with the Lord. It will be by far much better, very much better, which are the same word, the exact words he uses in Philippians 1.21 through 23. Remember Philippians 1.21? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to, be part, to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So Paul says in Philippians 1.23 that to be with Christ is very much better than to be here. And he says in our passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, that he would prefer to be there. Now, some might ask, and they might say, well, if it's very much better and it's preferable, then what, what about taking your own life? And, and I think that, that, again, is a wrong thought. That is a sinful thought. It is a selfish thought. It is 
Paul was never suicidal. And taking one's life, taking your own life, is in complete opposition to what would be God's will. How do we know this? Well, taking your own life is murder. And Exodus 20, 13 says, you shall not murder. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, you are not your own. And Galatians 2.20 says, you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live. So there's this idea where you've already given your life to Christ for him to do with it whatever he pleases, no matter how much suffering, no matter how much loneliness. And, you know, people who contemplate suicide, they think to themselves that they hate themselves. That's not it. It's self-love, actually. It's a sin of self-love. Because if they truly hated themselves, they wouldn't care who was doing what to them or how they were being treated or what their life circumstances were. I mean, if you really hated someone else and they were miserable, you would be happy that they're miserable. And that would be also sinful. That's not how we, we respond to people that we are at odds with. But... Uh, so if you really hated yourself and your life was miserable, you'd be like, I'm glad I'm miserable because I really hate myself. The reality is you really love yourself. And that self-love is sin. And it's self-centered and it's self-focused. And all sin has those who commit suicide. There are consequences. And the reason it's one of the most selfish sins is because people around you feel those consequences from your sin. And though it is not the unforgivable sin, and though I believe it is possible for someone who is a believer to commit suicide and go to heaven, it is still, it, it is a form of deception. All sin is deception. All sin, we start to believe a lie from the father of lies who's a master of deception. And the deception that he gives us time and time again with all of our sins is somehow this will be worth it. But sin is never worth it. There are always consequences to sin. And the fact that those consequences are not always immediate deceives us into thinking that somehow we got away with it and we're glad and it's worth it. And sin is never worth it. I could say a lot more on that, and, and um, you know, I, I'll, I'll share this. Uh, uh, my, my, my parents got divorced when I was uh, in my 20s, and, um, and my mom was ill at the time. She was HIV positive. I've told the story before, but my mom had gotten a blood transfusion from someone who um, was, uh, had donated blood and was HIV positive. And so she had surgery, got a blood transfusion. We found out in 1984, they didn't start checking blood until 1985 to see if it was HIV positive. So we found out in 1986 that she was um, HIV positive. I was in high school. Uh, some years later, a few years later, my parents ended up getting divorced. They did not have biblical grounds for their divorce. And... Um, my mom's um, T4 cell count went up after she was divorced because being in a difficult marriage oftentimes results 
in health, poor health. And her, her health immediately took a turn for the better. The stress that, that, that difficult situations put on your life um, is, is something that can be very difficult and it can affect you physically. But as I talk to my mom about it, even, and, 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 and we believe that physically, from an earthly perspective, that is, years were added to her life because she didn't have that stress. She got healthier. As much as I love my mother, and as much as I was so glad that you know, she lived for 12 years, mostly asymptomatic with, with HIV, so glad to have those extra years with her. I believe, because I believe God's word, that it would have been more glorifying for him if she would have been in a difficult doing what was pleasing to him and giving honor to him. I believe that with all my heart. And it's a reminder of that kind of thinking is that what we need to have. We need to have, we're not looking for the easy way out. And I understand, and I love my mom, and I'm, I don't want to speak badly about her. And she, she grew a lot. In fact, I, my sister and I were talking not so long ago. We got saved actually during that time because her life changed so much. And there was a point in, in my life where she would ask me about it. I was in college. I'm studying the Bible. I was saying things that were immature. And, and one of my professors just said to me, you know what? Maybe you should just be a son right now. So I was a son, and I just, I just let the, the adults make, make their decisions, and, and, and they weren't giving more approval or, or advice. But I, I, as I've thought about that, I think it's applicable to where many of us are at. We have to look at sin seriously. We have to deal with it seriously. We have to um, deal with sin severely. And we must not believe the lie that somehow it's worth it and somehow we will benefit it. We'll benefit from it. Uh, because God's ways are perfect. And we're prepared to do things that glorify him. And ultimately, we are looking forward to bringing glory to his name. Therefore, be of good courage. In either case, Paul could say he was of good courage. Verse 6 says he is always of good courage. Verse 8, notice this in the present tense, we are of good courage. The context here is still suffering. Those who criticized Paul were saying that, oh, Paul's nothing special. He's rather unsuccessful. And they were saying things about like he should preach Old Testament law and not this new covenant so much. And they were, they were bad-mouthing what he taught and who he was, that he was just an ordinary, unimpressive person. And he responds back in chapter 4, verse 7, I am an ordinary person. I'm just a clay pot, but I have this treasure. And this treasure that he held helped him to endure so that he could say in 2 Corinthians 3, Verse 8, or 4, verse 8, in every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the life that's being manifested. He's talking about dying. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 4, 11, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 12, death works in us, but life for you. 
it's mindful of what he said back in that other chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 on resurrection. He says, I die daily, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I die daily, which what he's saying is every day I get up and I preach Christ so boldly and I'm so excited to serve him that, that even though it may bring on me the persecution, which would be due his name that he would endure if he were here, I'm ready to lay my life on the line every day, no matter what the suffering is, no matter how I feel, no whether I'm sick or imprisoned or beaten or whatever, I die daily, and I face it daily. You criticize me. You say that I must not be a very successful apostle because I have so much suffering. I am born to suffer if that brings glory to him. That is what Paul is getting at here, and that's why he says in verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. What is sight? He defines it back in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18. Things which are seen, he calls them. He defines those things, the things which are temporal. Things which are not seen are eternal. Those who walk by sight are thinking about the temporal things. But the reason why Paul could be of such good courage, even during difficult times, is he, his mindset was not on what's temporal. His mindset was, was on things that are eternal, that are future, that are forever. By faith, that was his mindset. And if you're a believer and you leave this earthly tent, you will never miss your earthly body. You will never miss your earthly purpose, and you will never miss anything that is temporal. That's what he's trying to communicate to the Corinthians. We have a few minutes. We started early. We'll probably end early, but questions. There's a lot going on in this passage. I'm sure there are questions. Yes? Yeah, so I think he's talking about we're not a floating spirit because the, it, it just makes sense being clothed is a new body, being clothed. And so, but I'm not 100% sure that he's saying, oh, and now's a good time for me to refute this false Greek teaching. That may have been something in his mind. I do think that the greater context here shows that he was trying to say that... Um, uh, that there is a hope here. I think that you're not going to miss about your earthly body. And I think that there was this idea that maybe since I, you know, people become this like disembodied spirit and float around and whatever and never have any, anything material anymore that some people are like, well, I just, you know, I just want to be here. And, and that's what leads to hedonism, by the way, not Christian hedonism, but this idea that life right now, I better enjoy it for all it's worth because you only live once. You only have a body once, right? Does that answer your question? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the life he's talking about there, when he says at the end, what is mortal will be swallowed up by life, the life that he's talking about there is uh, verse 4, end of verse 4, um, is what is immortal, what is eternal, what is forever, what is eternal life. And, 
uh, he uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up. And I think he's, he's got the same principle here. Uh, this, this, e- this physical body that you enjoy now will be swallowed up by eternal life. And you, you're not going to miss it. Yeah. I think one thing interesting about this passage, and we may talk more about this in the future, but um, he's talking, I think Paul, if you look at Paul in totality, he, he would want to be raptured, right? The idea of not dying and, and uh, receiving your, you know, in an instant, having your physical body transformed your old temporary body, the tent, transformed into a resurrection body. Whereas in the future, those who die now are in heaven around the throne worshiping and their bodies will join their spirits at the, at the rapture. After the rapture will be the tribulation period. After the tribulation period, the saints will come down with Christ uh, and begin the millennium, and Christ will come and win the battle of Armageddon. There will be a thousand-year period where he reigns here on earth, and those who are in Christ, in their resurrected bodies, will be here on earth having a special place in the kingdom. This is what uh, we, we were talking about on Sunday mornings uh, in the main service, Pastor John's section just before that, chapter 6 through 18 of the book of uh, Revelation, which is which is speaking about the tribulation period. Last Sunday, somebody came to me after the first service and they said, wow, with all this bad things that are, all these bad things he's talking about, like, should we bring kids into this world? And I'm like, yes, bring them, bring them. This all happens after the rapture. All he's talking about happens after the rapture. So, uh, and I, I was thinking about this this week. When you think about what happens at death, what are some things that people in this world say happens after death? What, what do they say happens to your body? Okay, that's just oblivion. So that's a common uh, idea that we cease to exist. Nothing new. Epicurus in, in about 400 years before Christ, uh, or 300 years before Christ had an Epicurean philosophy that, that, that lived for today. And when you die, everybody just ceases to exist. What's another common thought about people today? Who, um, who, reincarnation? Yeah, that's, that's Hindus, Buddhists. That you you die, you somehow go into any other some kind of different form, and now you're based on what you did. You're either going to be like a, you know, a flea, or you're going to be a cat, or you know, I don't know how, how it all works. But it's totally contrary to what God has revealed in His Word, right? What are some other things people say? Everyone goes to heaven. Yeah, that, that, that there's, there's, we just, uh, you know, uh, we just kind of all go to heaven. There's no, there's no punishment for sin. That's also not, not um, really what the, what the Scripture teaches. In fact, um, it was Socrates and Plato who taught that only our souls live on and that everybody just goes on in this kind of murky existence in the future. What are, what are other... Purgatory, which is, a, yeah, also a, probably a misinterpretation of Luke 16 and, and other passages, just a, a, a not found in Scripture, that there's a temporary place 
for those where somehow you're waiting for some treasury of merit to be opened and, and give you enough credit to make it into heaven. Um, in recent years, since the 1900s, early 1900s, some have taught that um, there's annihilationism, which th- that is only some souls will cease to exist, the ones that are wicked, and other ones will live on, and that's not taught in Scripture. The Scripture is clear about eternal punishment and flames that never die. But what happens? Yeah, Reagan? Heaven's gained another angel. This idea that everybody, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Is that, is that the, the theory? Yeah. Um, uh, I think um, one thing that we need to think about is um, that... Yeah, and I'll just wrap this up and we'll talk about it later. But ultimately, um, our mindset, our lives will be better lived down here if we have a greater hope in the future. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for the joy that we have. Thank you for the privilege that we have of being able to look to your word. We, um, <laughs> we're amazed. We can't imagine how glorious Thank you for reminding us about our ultimate purpose. And may we be motivated to glorify you here on this earth today with a mindset that no matter what happens to us, whether we are persecuted, whether we are treated unjustly, ultimately we are to glorify you in all circumstances, that you are a God who is in control and that we have the joy and responsibility and can actually have joy even in the midst of terrible circumstances, knowing that we won't be able to compare any of our suffering with how great it will be the day that we're with you. So may that impact our lives. May we look at things differently and live differently. And then may that, may others see that and they see that you, that you shine and the difference that you make in our lives. So we commit this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.